All right, so good morning, everyone. It's good to see uh, all of you folks. I appreciate the last two weeks having off, because like I say, or as people tell me all the time, we, we pastors, we only, we only work one hour a week, so I didn't have to work even those couple of hours the last two weeks, because Brandon and Justin stood in and preached last week, so for that, I am very grateful. But anyway, let's go ahead and wrap this sucker up. If you have your Bible with you, and I always hope that you do, please turn with me to Third John. Third John, it's a little tiny itty bitty book, very, at, very much at the end of your Bible. If you find Revelation, which is the last book, and you flip a page to the left, you'll find Third John. It'll be right there. You're close enough to it that you can find it here by the time I get from this point to when we actually get into, into the text. So what we're doing is that we're wrapping up, we're concluding a sermon series that we entitled Real Life And what we've been doing for several weeks is we've discussed what it means to be a real-life Christian single, what it means to be a real-life Christian husband, a real-life Christian wife. We've discussed what real-life Christian marriage looks like, what real-life Christian parenting looks like. We've taken a look at what real-life Christian friendships look like. And last week, we we talked about, we discussed the kind of perspective a real-life Christian should have in regards to money and stuff. And today, we're talking about real-life church, real-life church as some people might prefer to say. So, some of you know this. To be a, a true, to be a true North Carolinian means that this time of the year is the most happiest time of the year. We get the madness. Like, if you're a true North Carolinian, you get the madness. You're all about the NCAA brackets in the tournament you understand that this is the kumite of collegiate athletics it is all about what is happening right now we get our ncaa brackets and we fill out who the winners are going to be then we guess you get into the tournament and we start watching teams we could care less about but because we wrote their names on a slot we care highly about iona or iowa state or northern Illinois, like who are these people? But we care, and we pull for our team. We pull all of us against Duke because that's the Christian thing to do. And so you, we, we love it because it's, we love the buzzer beaters, and we love the drama, and we love everything about it, the, the Cinderella stories that come up. It's, it's the madness, and it's part of being a North Carolinian, whether you're a state fan or Carolina fan, Wake Forest fan, Duke fan, whatever. It's Tobacco Road. I mean, we're about college basketball if we're not about anything, anything else. So just imagine, and this happens, somebody not from North Carolina moves to North Carolina. And they start inquiring about such madness because they don't know about this madness that, that we get around here. And let's just assume that this person knows nothing of basketball, which I know for us North Carolinians that sounds perverse. But just imagine, they don't even know about basketball. They don't know anything about basketball. So they start reading up on it and studying it. And they get the rule books and they start learning the rules. And they actually get history books and start learning the history of basketball. And as they're doing all this reading and this research, they're, they're getting familiar with the X's and O's, the actual coaching, the tactics, the philosophy 
or the different varying philosophies of different uh, techniques and, and different offenses and different defenses. And let's say that they go through this entire season learning about basketball, and they decide, you know what, this sounds pretty cool. I want to be a basketball player. So they run out, and they go shopping, and they get the long shorts, otherwise known as culottes by some people's standards, but the, the long, they get the long shorts, and then they get the coordinating oversized matching tank top with a, ne- with a number on the back, and they get the high tops, they get a basketball, they get a basketball hoop, and they go outside and they start taking shots. Question, are they a basketball player? No, because to be a basketball player, you first have to be on a team. You know that the game of basketball was invented by Dr. James Naismith, a Canadian by birth, but we'll leave that aside. And (laughs) I just think that's funny, but but anyway. (laughs) He wrote, he invented the game, and he wrote the original rule book. He invented the game of basketball, and he created it to be a team sport. That's what it is. Christianity is a team sport. We, each and every one of us, we may have our individual faith, and and Lord willing, we do, but it's meant to be lived out in the context of others who share the same faith. God has brought us into a community of faith, a a faith family, as some may say, to live it out. God created the church, and he wrote the rule book. And he's brought us into this Christian faith, and it's a team sport. So if someone took the Bible and started reading it, and researching it, and studying it, the rules, the history, the philosophy of it, they could not help but come out of that time of study and say, someone who's a believer is supposed to be doing life with others that are believers. Like, there's no room in Scripture for lone wolf or lone ranger Christianity. It's meant to be lived out in the context of a family of faith of brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that all sounds well and good, and that sounds wonderful, up until we come face to face with the reality that church is flat out hard. Church is hard. It's, it's amazing and sad how often I hear of people who have been at some church and something happened in the past, And there's tremendous hurt that took place at a church. You know, maybe it was the pastor or someone in leadership, and and they they exerted, like, this overlording abuse of power on people. They took advantage of people, abused people. Maybe they were caught in some kind of egregious sin. And that breaks the heart of Christians and, and can break a church apart. Or it's amazing how often, folks, I hear Like, I was at a church, and all people ever did, they gossiped about me, and they stabbed me in the back. It happens so, so much. It's breathtaking how often so-called Christians easily judge one another and hold grudges against one another. It's amazing how often that that takes place. And and then all of a sudden, a slight little difference in an opinion about the the color of the carpet creates this this schism in the church. And then there's now two churches 
of people that don't get along because one wanted brown carpet and the other one wanted burgundy carpet. And animosity and backbiting happens. It happens all the time. It's one of the reasons. It's one of the reasons why church attendance is on the decline. Because people have been hurt at a church or they've seen a loved one mistreated at a church or children, their children have grown up in a very toxic church environment. So when they turn 18 and can get away from mom and dad, it's like, I'm done with that mess. And, and folks, I have seen this myself. I've, I've, lived, I've lived through these kinds of scenarios years and years ago. I'm at a church. I was a lot younger, and, and I didn't know, but the choir director and the pastor had a serious beef with one another. I was clueless. And one Sunday morning after the choir special, some of you know what I'm talking about. Like some churches still do the choir special. So they, the choir did their special, and they sat down, and congregations all like, amen, wonderful. And the pastor opens up the Bible, and he begins his message, and the choir director's mother faints. And it turns out it was a pretend faint. And the choir director came and grabbed her out of her chair, of her pew, to help his mother out of the sanctuary. And with that, it was a cue. And most of the choir and a lot of people in the sanctuary stood up and walked out with them. It was a planned coup. It was a conspiracy where people actually did that, simply in opposition to the pastor, because the pastor had a difference of opinion with the choir director. I saw it. It's like one of the worst things. I have such a vivid memory of that. And I'll be honest with you, if that's what church is, I genuinely don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want to have anything to do with church if that's what it is. So why are we here then? Why are we gathered this morning as, as Anthem Church? Why should we even bother? Why should we be vested and, and involved and be a part of a church or, or Anthem Church? And, and it's quite simple. And the best way for me to, to get to the answer of this question is to quote C.H. Spurgeon who said this, and I hope that this will be up on, on, the, on the slides here. C.A. Spurgeon said, in reference of the local church, give yourself to the church, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. So he's admitting that the church, that our churches are not perfect. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. The church is not perfect, and I hope that you're glad that it's not. And here's why. He goes on to say, If I had, had never joined the church until I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all, because there's no such thing as a perfect church, Right? So if I had waited until I found one without the hypocrites, I would have never joined one because every single one is filled with hypocrites. I would have never joined one at all. And the moment that I did join it, so if I had found a perfect church, the moment that I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. I, Spurgeon speaking, I would have ruined this perfect church. I would have spoiled it for it would not have been perfect, the perfect church, after I had become a member. Still, imperfect as our churches are, as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. It is the dearest place on earth. 
All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. The church, our churches, are filled with problems, and those problems are called people (laughs) because we are sinners, we're morally flawed. We rub each other the wrong way, whether we mean to or not, by accident. And then sometimes we do it on purpose. We are filled with hypocrites, because we are. But that's what the church is. It's, it's not a place for the perfect. It's a place for the imperfect. We admit it openly. I am flawed. I need God. I need God's forgiveness. I need his grace. And all of us have this incredible capacity to hurt and to offend each other. We have an incredible capacity to do so. And here's the other side. By the grace of God, we also have an even greater capacity. And that is to be the dearest place on earth. That despite the calamity that we can bring on each other, despite like all the wrong that we can do and how we can make a mess of each, other, of each other's lives and, and hurt one another, despite all of that, by the grace of God, because the Holy Spirit of God dwells within his people, we have a capacity to show grace to one another. We have the capacity to be forgiving. We have the capacity to extend kindness and compassion. We can not only be the dearest place, we can be the dearest people on earth a place of joy and peace. And we could do that if we would just remember but one thing, and that is simply this. God's people are to be the conduit of God's love. God's people, the church, believers, gathered believers, we're to be the conduit, the means by which God's love that is in heaven, that dwells in his heart, invades this world and invades each other's lives, one another's lives. That's the church. We could be the dearest people, the dearest place on earth. God's people are to be the conduit of God's love, and that's what the church is. And that's what a real-life Christian church should be. A place filled with love-filled followers of Jesus who desire to display the love of Christ to one another. To one another. So with that, there are a few thoughts from 3 John that I want to try to uh, just share with you. won't camp out in the whole book here, but there's some thoughts in 3 John that are going to help us to be a love-filled church. A church filled with believers who are love-filled. And so with that, let's just read verse 1. 3 John, verse 1, it says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So the first thing I want us to see there is that in a real-life Christian church, believers express their love for one another. In a real-life Christian church, believers, Christians, express their love for one another. So the apostle John wrote this letter. Here he refers to himself as the elder. So he's saying, I'm the old guy. And at the time, probably, that he actually wrote this letter, he's probably the last surviving of the original 12 disciples. He's pushing 90-ish or so. So he calls himself the elder, and he writes to a a guy named Gaius, 
And we don't know much about Gaius, but one thing that we know right off the top of the back in the first verse right here is that he is beloved by John. It's how he starts. He's beloved. And the word beloved uh, means like a deep affection. It means a, a sincere affection or genuine love for another person. So John verbalizes, right? He speaks his love, his, of his brotherly love to Gaius. He, know, he wants for Gaius to know just how near and dear he is to his heart. Now, to the men in the room, because this is a guy writing to a guy, a letter, not even a text, right? This is a letter, so it's more personal than a text, right? So just imagine I write you a letter. Let's call it an email, e-letter. Or if we're talking on the phone, and I tell you verbally, or I write it even, because sometimes written stuff carries a bigger weight. You see it. Oh, my gosh. What if I tell you, I love you? Like, to your face. Like, I love you. Or I wrote it in an email. I, I love you. Guys, how, how, would, you, how would you react to me saying, I, I love you. I love you. I love you. You're my beloved. I love you. And my guess is that most guys would find that a bit awkward for another man to, other than dad or son, right, to say that I, I love you. You're my beloved. I love you. And the reason we guys find it so awkward is that the world has distorted our view of masculinity. Let me tell you this. I, I argue this. Jesus is the manliest man who's ever walked on the face of the planet. There is no greater stud than Jesus. He is true masculinity, true manhood. You want me to prove it? How many of us would willingly, willingly, with joy in our heart, step upon a cross, allow, to, allow ourselves to be crucified, knowing that God Almighty is going to pour wrath upon us, even though we're innocent, for the, all, for the entire sins of the entire world? Jesus is pure bravery and strength on a scale of which we know not. That's a man. And then you read the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and what you see is a very tender man who did not shy away of telling others, the men that he walked with for three years, I love you, I care for you, and expressing his love for them. Now, I'm not asking anyone in the room to go up to a perfect stranger and say, I love you, because you might end up in jail. Like, you'll be a weirdo, right? You'll, next thing you know, you're on medication. Like, you're in a padded room, and there's all kinds of Facebook posts about you. We don't want that. So I'm not asking that. John and Gaius, they knew each other. They had a relationship with one another. They spent time together. They prayed together. They served together. They'd been Christian brothers to one another. And out of a season of being brothers and, and brothers with one another, an affection arose. A genuine Christian affection for one another had grown. It's amazing how often in my years I have heard people Say, I don't feel loved at my church. For every, I hear this all the time. 
And I try to be empathetic to it. I try to be thoughtful that maybe they have been at a very unloving church or maybe currently are at an unloving church. So I don't want to dismiss it as if they're out of their mind. But I, I want to also counsel and speak truth into it. And I always kind of follow up with the same questions. So I don't feel loved at my church. And I'll, I'll ask, well, who are you loving at your church? Who are you spending time with at your church? Who are you praying for at your church? Who are you praying with at your church? Who are you serving with at your church? Who are you pouring your life into or allowing to pour their lives into you? And every time the answer is based, it's a resounding no one. And so this is what happens. And it's every conversation. It's amazing. They, they go to church, kind of. They, they show up on time, maybe. And they leave as soon as it's over. They're not in a Bible study. They're not in a Sunday school. They're not serving. They're, they're not involved in the life of the church. But they'll cast a judgment upon these people for not loving them. And you know that love requires commitment. It requires time investment. We have to open ourselves up to allow for others to actually love us. We have to invest time in the lives of other individuals. You know, you, you've heard me or whoever does the announcements or, or, or preaches on a given Sunday. We always encourage people, hey, will you serve in a ministry? And we do this all the time, partly out of need. Because we need some people to volunteer in our ministries. We need it badly. Like, like, can you please help out with our children's Sunday school? Because we need some additional help there. We need some help on the AV team or the praise team or whatever the case may be. And, and we do. We need help. Do you hear me? We need help. We need help in all these areas. But you know that the reason we ask isn't only because we need bodies doing things. One of the reasons we're so adamant folks serve is to give you an extra opportunity to get to know one another there are relationships in church that would never form other than hey we serve together on the praise team or we co-teach a children's sunday school class it's in order to allow a space to get to make relationships and deepen community and, it, and I would say that that's the height of quality time. We are spending time with one another serving Jesus. Like, there's no better quality time than that. Every once in a while, maybe twice a year, we have, like, what we call our, our building work day. So we gather here on a Saturday, and, you know, there's stuff that we paint. There's this, we make signs, restroom signs, or we make the, the blind for the, the women's bathroom out front there. All kinds of stuff. And it's good stuff that happens. But the really good stuff that happens is the conversations. And the laughter. Like, I love it. Like, you hear people laughing. And people that, that were, are sawing something that would never really have met or interacted other than they're at a saw. One's holding a two-by-four and the other one's applying the saw to it. And they're laughing. Because church is so much more than a worship service. Like, I say this often. It's, a, it's an important part, but church is not a worship service. Church is a community Church is a community of faith. It's a gathering of people who share the same faith in Jesus Christ. 
there's a profound connectivity around that. We share faith in Jesus, in the, in the Son of God. God has called us together as a church family. The, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. It means called out. We have been called out of the world. Those of us who were not a people, but were now a people. with the ekklesia, the called out ones, called together to do life together, to be brothers and sisters in Christ to one another. That's the church. And if we would just take the time and invest, and invest, we will be shocked at what takes place. As you spend time praying or serving or laughing, we'll start to build a love for one another. And if we have it already, a greater love for one another. And that's precisely what John and Gaius had experienced. And John was not afraid to voice his genuine love toward, toward Gaius. And just know this, that much tension in our churches and in our relationships with one another, much of it could be diffused, if not altogether eradicated, if we simply replaced our vocabulary. If instead of taking kind of a negative tone or critical words or pessimistic language or any of that, and then traded that kind of language with affectionate words and loving language, it is significantly harder to get mad and stay mad at a person who's telling you that they love you. It's extremely harder, much more difficult to get mad if you're telling them they love you, that you love them, and they're telling you that they love you. Like, wow, like what a, what a quick, simple remedy. If we would just simply express our affection, positive language toward one another. Great job. Oh, you taught that Sunday school well. Can't wait to see you next week. Like, it's amazing what will take place. And, and I think all of us need to take steps in that direction. I'm not saying to go up to someone you haven't met at Anthem Church and say, I love you. God be with you if you do. I, I'll accept it. Someone might not, but, but that's their issue, right? Anyway, um, we all want to take steps toward expressing our love to one another. So are you in one of our A-teens, in one of our small groups? Because that's, that's a way to build quality time with one another. Are you serving in a ministry? Can you please serve alongside others? To build some quality time. All right, are you ready? I've been after this one for two years. Next week, going on forward, this, I, I, this is going to be it. I'm going to be excited going forward. Get here at 1015. Shut up, Rick. Like everybody just slapped me in the face right there with their looks. I always, I've been asking for two years, can we show up early? Well, our service starts at 1030. I'm saying, can we show up 15 minutes early? 1015? It's, re it's not really that much. But here's what happens, and I know this because I know this. We get to church barely on time. We got our one kid or six kids, however many we have. We throw them in the car. We break the speed limit on the way to church. We get all frazzled. We're going to be late. We get to the building. Like we're yank them out of the car. Three of them are crying. And then we throw them in their, their Sunday school classes, and we run, and we sit down, and we haven't said hello to anyone. And so all I ask, like, sit your clocks. 15 minutes, get here at 10.15, grab a cup of coffee. We've got water. We've got mints. <laughs> One day we'll have donuts. 
If we ever get a Bojangles, you never know. We may surprise you with a bow time up in here. But the point is, can we just get here and just check in? How are you doing? How was your week? How can I pray for you? How was the game last night? Hey, did your kid get over the flu? Folks, if, if we had it my way, we'd get here a lot earlier. I'm just saying 15 minutes. So I'm sure that we just remedied that one right now. I'm sure. I can't wait till next week next week so anyway be part of the church be involved in each other's lives invite each other to breakfast lunch coffee to dinner take the time i'm not asking you to have to know everyone that way but at least a few at least a few john loves gaius he knows him they've served together they they've hung out together Ultimately, though, that's not the reason why John loves Gaius. It's not because they've hung out so much. That's not actually the real reason. The real reason is actually stated in verse 1. Look at it again. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in, fill in the blank, in, in truth. John does not say, I love you. He actually says, I love you in truth and there is a profound difference between loving someone and loving someone in truth you know that for love to be true love it must be grounded in truth without truth love devolves into mere sentimentality without truth love is simply emotionalism it's, it's all that it is and so my question to you is, what is truth? What, what is truth? Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus is, is truth. He is the truth. So when John says, I love you, Gaius, in truth, he's saying, I love you in, in Jesus. I love you in Christ. I love you because of Jesus. I love you for the sake of Jesus. I love you on account of Jesus. We share Jesus. We share the gospel. I love you because we share in this profound truth of the good news that comes from, from God. Is he doesn't love them because Gaius happens to be a cool guy. Maybe he was. I don't know. He, he, he loves them not because they, they hung out and got along. Maybe they did, I'm assuming. I don't know. He loved them because their hearts were knit by the blood of Christ. Their hearts were knit by the blood of Christ. Their kinship, their brotherly bond is rooted in their common faith that Jesus is God, that Jesus is creator, that Jesus is judge, that Jesus is friend, that Jesus is shepherd, that Jesus is the savior of the world. Like it doesn't matter if they have anything else in common. They could have the entire world in common and it would pale in significance in comparison to their commonality in the grace of God. They had this common bond that can't be explained. They had partaken of the same grace given through the sacrifice of Jesus. They had both partaken. They had tasted of the goodness of God. You know, that's the greatest thing that any of us could have in common. Some of us like basketball. Some of us don't. Some of us like football or fishing or sewing. Like, we all have different interests. Some of us will share them. Some of us won't. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether we share those kinds. Those things are trivial. At the end of the day, they're nice and they're fun and they're cool. 
But what matters is the commonality that we have in Christ. In Christ, John loves Gaius in truth. They share the truth. They're both sons of God. They're co-heirs of Christ. They're indwelt both by the same Holy Spirit of God. And they're both going to sit at the same table with God forever and ever. Forever and ever. And the, the truth is that in church, we're going to disagree. We're going to have all kinds of disagreements. Sometimes they'll be nice. Sometimes they'll become what I might consider intense fellowship. Some of you get it. All right. Sometimes they'll escalate. Sometimes we'll share differences of opinion or perspective that don't matter about anything, about matters trivial. Next thing you know, it's a big brouhaha. Sometimes we're going to hurt each other. And there may be times where it's intentional and times where it's just accidental. I, I told our, our church planting crew like three years ago, it's not if, it's when I hurt you, when I let you down. It's just if I haven't already, give me a few minutes. We will hurt and offend one another. And I, I think we need to kind of back up a little bit and think that we're, that's not, that can't happen. No, that, that will happen, especially the more involved we are with each other's lives. So these discussions, they're going to lead to intense fellowship. We're going to say things we shouldn't say. We're going to do things we shouldn't do. We're going to hurt. We're going to offend one another. And each and every time, we need to stop and remember this. We are in Christ. We are brothers and we are sisters. We are in Christ. And the same sacrifice that earned my salvation earns yours. And if God is willing to forgive me for my sins, then I better forgive yours for yours against me. If God has been gracious to me, it is my appropriate response to then extend grace to others when they transgress against me. Being a part of a real Christian church, a real-life Christian church, means expressing our love, and that means verbalizing, actually telling each other, man, I love you, brother. It means that. But there's no greater expression of love than actually saying, I forgive you. I'm, gr I'm going to be gracious to you. You've hurt me. I love you. I forgive you. That's the greatest expression of love that there is. So I would ask everyone to take those steps, to take those steps toward building the kind of relationships with one another, with each other, that we can express our love and be forgiving to one another. These, these, the, there's eternal implications for our faith in Jesus, right? We get to be with, with the Lord Almighty forever and ever in, in a sea of glory where we're showered forever with kindness. But that, that truth has implications for here and now. We're to be a people who display love toward one another. And I think that this is so important as we step into Holy Week, into Easter Week. As we count down the days to Resurrection Sunday next week. I think it's important for us, particularly this time of year, to evaluate our hearts and to evaluate our relationship. 
or relationships with, with other believers. This Thursday, as, as it was announced earlier, we're going to have a Maundy Thursday service, a Holy Thursday service. Uh, we've done this the last couple of years. It is an amazing time. It is a, a wonderful worship time that we have as, as a church family. And we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. There may not be a more appropriate time of the year to take the Lord's Supper than on Maundy Thursday. And Scripture makes one thing clear, that if you are a follower of Jesus, before taking of the bread and the juice of the elements in the Lord's Supper, that our relationships with fellow believers must be right. Must be right. Otherwise, we're in essence, what Scripture would say is that we're drinking judgment upon ourselves because we're taking it in a manner that is not fitting with the sacrifice of Jesus. And the sacrifice of Jesus, it just, it just teaches grace. Look at what Jesus did to give you grace. And if I receive that grace, then what should I do with it? Give it. Extend it. Pass it on to another. But, Rick, you don't understand what they said. Do you understand what you did that sent Jesus to the cross? Folks, we are just as guilty as those Roman soldiers for driving in those nails into the hands and feet of Jesus. We, all of us would have been in that crowd mocking him, at the very least like the disciples running away. And so if Jesus is willing to forgive me and us for all that we've done, we need to then take that grace and extend it to others. So, that's enough of verse 1. Time for the lightning round. You ready? All right, number two. In a real-life Christian church, believers lovingly pray for one another. Look at verse two. Beloved, he says it again. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Like, this is what it means to be a Christian, be part of a church, that we know each other well enough that we know how to pray for one another. We pray not only for each other's material, physical needs, or if someone has a health issue, we pray for them, or a financial issue, we pray for them, but we pray for their, for their soul, right? He prays, for, he prays for his soul. So instead of fixating on the differences or fixating on the negative, which we're so often prone to do, instead of doing that, let's just pray. Let's just pray for our fellow church people. Let's pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray that it goes well for them. So a, a few weeks back, we put together this, an Anthem Church prayer guide, this got prayer request from different people in our church. So if you, if you have a prayer request and you want it on there, let me know. We'll add it to it. If you want to receive the prayer guide and you're not receiving it, let me know. I'll make sure that you get it. If, if you have a prayer request that's maybe, okay, that's a little too public, well, are you in a small group? Are you in one of our A-teams? Because that's a smaller crew. You know the people a little bit better, so you may be more able to share something more intimately that way. Or do you have at least one or two other people in the church you know well enough that you can entrust with a specific prayer request if it's really private, really personal? Because we don't want to air out all our laundry all the time. You can ask me. It is my pleasure. It's part of my role to pray for you. But if everyone gives me all of their prayer requests, that's all I'm going to do. And I got other things to do, too. So I, I, I love to do it, but we need, e we need each other to pray for one another. And then usually the third Sunday of each month, we gather here at 6 p.m. 
We're not doing it tonight because we're doing a different type of service tonight. But the third Sunday of each month at 6, we gather in this room and we have a prayer meeting, old school prayer meeting. And we share our requests with one another and what's going on in the life of our church. And we pray out loud. And, it, and you're like, I don't want to pray out loud. That's okay. You don't have to. We don't call on people. We don't make you. We let people pray as they see fit. But the church is to be praying with one another and for one another. So that's point number two. In a real-life Christian church, believers lovingly pray for one another. Number three, in a real-life Christian church, believers love to see spiritual growth in one another. Believers love to see spiritual growth in one another. Let's read verses three and four. For I rejoiced greatly. Not just a little rejoicing, I mean big time rejoicing. Rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's so easy to be critical of one another. I can't believe they're acting this way. I can't believe they're doing this. I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they dropped the ball. And we're all so negative toward other people judging them. What if instead we, instead of doing that, we actually just celebrated the victories? Did you see such and such? They started praying at small group. Did you see such and such? They joined a small group. Hey, they were so hesitant to teach in the children's Sunday school and watch them, look at them go. They're the best teacher we got now. Like to actually, like to celebrate the victories that we see in each other's lives. And toward that, so instead of being negative, we should really like press in and, and be and disciple one another. Instead of like sitting back and being judgmental, coming alongside and say, hey, I see that you're struggling with this. I'm not judging you. I want to help you. Let's get together once a week and talk about it, pray about it. What scripture have to say about it? And then as we see that person grow, we celebrate it. Rejoice in each other, in each other's victories. So in a real life Christian church, believers love to see spiritual growth in one another. Number four, I told you it was lightning round. Number four, in a real life Christian church, believers love unity. Unity. Look at verses 9 and 10, skipping to 9 and 10. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. I want to throw in a Jack right in there. I'm going to bring up what he's doing, Jack. Talking wicked nonsense against us and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. And also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So there, there's a guy named Diotrephes in Gaius' church who's the worst nightmare for a church. He puts himself first. He puts himself ahead of other believers, ahead of the church, ahead of the gospel. I would say even ahead of Jesus, ultimately, is what he's doing. He's, got, he's an ambitious guy, but it's a selfish, self-serving ambition and agenda. And he caps off, the, the way his resume caps off here, his spiritual resume, not only does he impede the work of God, he kicks out of the church the people that are doing the work of God. You don't want to be this guy. Don't ever be this person. Right? And that's why John, John writes, he's like, when I come, uh-oh, it's, it's, it's on. It's about to get on when I show up because this, this can't be left unchecked. 
And, and that's really the point that I wanted to share there, that when discord rears its head, it has to be dealt with, and it needs to be dealt with immediately. Our tendency is conflict avoidance. I get it. I'm that way. Most of us are. We don't like conflict, so we'll, we're the ostrich. We're the proverbial ostrich. We'll stick our head in the sand. Maybe it'll go away. If I ignore it, it's not a real problem. So we hesitate, we hesitate, we'll ignore it, and nothing good ever comes from ignoring division in the church or breaks in, in relationships in the church. It's, we have to fight for unity in the body, in the church. have to fight for it. Listen to me. Fight for it. Which means you have to go toward the conflict. If you're fighting for unity, you by definition are running into a war zone. That makes sense. You're running into the war zone. Bringing about unity sometimes requires requires confrontation. You know, Jesus said, "Blessed are the peacemakers." Jesus did not say, "Blessed are the pacifists." Jesus said, "Blessed are the peacemakers, those who make peace." Well, to make peace, there's an implication that there's a war or a battle, and there's someone that runs into the fight. To make peace. That is a peacemaker. Running toward the conflict. It's bringing a solution to the problem. And bringing reconciliation to the parties. The ones who are hurting or doing the hurting. So in a real life Christian church, believers fight for unity. We love unity. We love it. We hate anything but unity. We fight for it. Number five, in a real-life Christian church, believers imitate love. Look at the next verse, verse 11. It says, Beloved, there he goes again. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate what? Good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. You know that all of us imitate? All of us imitate all the time. The question is, what is it that we are imitating? What is it that we're imitating? What we imitate actually reveals our true spiritual condition. The way that we know if ourselves or someone else is in good, a good spiritual, healthy condition, whether they're in right relationship with God, is are they imitating what is good? Are they doing what is good? And what is good, y'all? What is good? Sunday school answer? Jesus. Jesus is good. Jesus is good. He's good and he's love. And he's love. So a real life Christian is by definition a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus imitates the example of Jesus. Imitates the love of Jesus. This is what a follower of Christ does. We follow and we imitate. So that means we extend grace. We give forgiveness. We are kind and compassionate. When someone slaps us in the face, we turn the cheek. We don't hold grudges, but we choose to be loving to the person who would do us harm. That's a follower of Jesus. We imitate what is good. We imitate Christ. We, we imitate his life of sacrifice. For Christians... Folks, do you realize that this sometimes means we have to take it on the chin unfairly? Take it in the gut? Take one for the team? It's not fair, I know. That's the point. 
It's a life of sacrifice where we give ourselves, no matter the cost to us, for the good of another person. Let me ask you, who did that for us? Sunday school answer. Jesus. He went to the cross. He took it on the chin. In a profound and infinite manner, he took it on the chin. It was not fair for my sin to be placed upon the shoulders of Christ. But he did it willingly, and he paid a cost to himself that I may be free. He died my death that I may have life. Because God loves us, we are to love one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Belonging to a real life Christian church means that we display love to one another. We act like brothers and sisters in Christ to one another. You know what it means? One of our families has a baby, and we rush to the hospital to celebrate the birth. Someone in our church family gets sick. We put together a meal train, and we bring Stephen's barbecue to them. Your homemade banana pudding, right? When someone's sick, we help them. Someone's sick, we take their kids to school. Someone needs a car, we lend them a car. We help them, we love them. Heard a pastor, Matt Chandler, said, you want to know what the church is? Get sick. You find out what the church is when something goes bad because the church shows up. And it's true. Unless someone else gets sick, unless us show up and help them. Sharon Bowman lost her mother last weekend she got calls and emails and texts and cards and flowers they live in georgia now two states away and our church family because they were here for two years has blessed them from two states away as many of you know uh brent his dad is terminally ill doctors have given four months six months and so someone in our church out of love for Brent, and because we love Brent's dad, Ronnie, contacted the New York Yankees, because Ronnie Honeycutt is a Yankees fan, contacted the New York Yankees, got two free tickets for opening day. That's cool. Out of love for our church family. One phone call, we had the flights paid for. That's church. Not that other junk, not the division and the tension. That's not, that's not how it should be. It's the helping each other, blessing one another, praying for one another, being good to one another. That, that's what this is. This is why we're doing this. You know, that's why we say invite people to church, because I think that's what we have going on here. We want to be a, a church that's a blessing that displays the love of God. And it, you know, not that I have much say in it, but it, as much as I possibly can say, I would say that that's the kind of church we're going to be. And my question to all of you, whether you're here for the first time or been here for two plus years, are you in? Are you in with that kind of church? Do you want to be a part of that kind of church? Will you help us to build 
that kind of body here. It is very fitting that we finish off this sermon series talking about the church on the week that we enter into Easter week. You know, this is where we commemorate the sacrifice of Jesus. He goes to a cross and he, he took our sin upon his shoulders and he bore the weight. He paid the price. He died to death. He was resurrected from the dead. And my question is, why did Jesus do that? Or better yet, who did he do that for? And the answer is the church. Jesus died on the cross for the church to set a people apart aside for his glory to be holy spotless and blameless and to be with him for all eternity he did it for the church and between this day and that day when we're ushered into his presence as his church what are we to be doing displaying the love of god in this world displaying it to one another and displaying it to the world and the way that we do that is by expressing our affection to one another forgiving one another it's by lovingly praying for each other it's by rejoicing in each other's spiritual growth and helping each other to, to grow spiritually it's fighting for unity that's how we display the love of god we fight for unity and we imitate good we imitate jesus we imitate love that is a real life Christian church. How do you need to respond this morning? I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes and bow your heads and to respond how you need to. I'm going to ask the praise team to come ahead and to lead us in the final song. And as we enter into this most precious of holy weeks, how do you need to respond to God? If you're here this morning and you, you're realizing that you've never embraced the gospel and God's forgiveness, you can do that right now. Where you're sitting, just confess to the Lord that you're a sinner. Repent of your sin and embrace the love of God and the grace of God, and you'll be made a new person. And not only that, you'll be made a new person with a family of brothers and sisters. For the rest of us who are followers and, and we're anthemers we're part of this church i would say like like where where can you take a step forward do you need to join a small group one of our 18s do you need to serve in one of our ministries get involved with the church do you have a broken relationship with a brother or a sister that's in dire need of grace and forgiveness and the gospel Would you take a step now as you pray to the Lord to bring reconciliation? So just pray silently and the praise team will lead us in our final song.